Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. These next several episodes are going to be dedicated to the study and illustration of the white Christian evangelical movement in America and what it means for our politics. We've got some experts, some very thoughtful people, some authors who are all going to help us walk through exactly what's going on, how this church operates, and what it means for our democracy. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did interviewing. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tim Alberta, an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and staff writer for The Atlantic. Prior to The Atlantic, he served as chief political correspondent for Politico, and over the course of the past decade has reported in Washington for The Wall Street Journal, The Hotline, National Journal, and National Review. His latest book is The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he is coming to us from Michigan. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I read your book, and Tim, I want to ask, I saw a little bit of parallel, which is, you know, you grew up in an evangelical household. I was born into the Republican Party, and for the first 35 years of my life, it was all I knew, right? And then someone like Donald Trump came along. So as you have explored this since, you know, the passing of your father and the widely reported story from the beginning of your book about you know, people coming up to you, they heard what, you know, Rush Limbaugh said about you. Do you still consider yourself part of that movement? Do you still consider yourself an evangelical? Well, I struggle with it, Reed, in part because of the same definitional dilemma that you just spoke to. Like, what does it mean to be a Republican? Well, what does it mean to be an evangelical? You know, for most of my life, I always understood evangelicalism to be rooted in not just a vague belief in Jesus being the son of God, but in a charge to evangelize, to take the teachings of Jesus to the world around us and to demonstrate the love and the redemptive power of Christ to the world. And the problem, I think, is that it becomes incredibly difficult to evangelize to a world that has come to view evangelicals as a bunch of political opportunists a bunch of hypocrites and power-hungry political junkies who just want to weaponize the brand of Jesus to try and conquer the culture around them. And so I would not readily identify myself at this point as an evangelical, simply because I think it probably does more harm than good to the message of Jesus, which I subscribe to wholeheartedly. And I, you know, I'm part of a church, I'm part of a church community, and I, I'm raising my kids in the church, but it's a different era than the one I grew up in for reasons that you can appreciate. And I think that's one thing that you talked about, which is how much of the reputation 
or the assessment of the lay person or lay people, myself included, is accurate about self-identified evangelicals. And I'm, I want to ask you that question, both of the person attending, you know, the church in Tennessee and the pastor like Robert Jeffress sitting in, as you said, a quarter of a billion dollar facility in downtown Dallas. It's tough because I think I say this on like the second page of the book, read like I really go out of my way to emphasize early on that, you know, we're dealing with a vast spectrum of people here. It's really easy in our politics today to just draw caricatures of huge groups of our fellow citizens. But, you know, like when we talk about white evangelicals or even white evangelicals who support Trump in the primary, right, we're talking about millions and millions of people. So understanding some of the different behaviors and attitudes that drive these folks, you know, is really important. You know, like in my own experience, just as a kid growing up in the church and then getting out into the world and doing all this reporting I did over a period of years to piece this book together to really understand from the ground up what was happening. I still, and people will probably roll their eyes when I say this, and that's fine, but like I still believe that the great majority of these people are really good and decent and sincere people who I think in some cases have just been led astray, who have been lied to a lot and who have kind of lost sight of where their true identity is in church and in Christ and, you know, what their priorities should and should not be as it pertains to kind of civic engagement and, you know, the culture around them. Like, I don't assign malice in a sweeping way to a lot of these folks. And, you know, where I do, you mentioned the name Robert Jeffress, where I do more aggressively prosecute the case here is against those in positions of leadership, authority, influence, who have, I think, used and in certain cases abused that privilege that they have of shepherding, of leading flocks of people. And, you know, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and he also talks about the ravenous wolves that are attempting to infiltrate the flock and to devour the sheep. And the fear I have as I write sort of toward the end of the book is that some of those wolves are inside of the church and that there has not been an effective accounting for the damage being done by the wolves who are portraying themselves as shepherds. So I guess that's the question is, you know, where is the line, I guess, in an individual churchgoer in personal agency, I guess, Tim, which is an interesting question, I guess, to ask in a faith institution, right? Because you're by definition giving some agency or you're looking for agency in your faith. But again, you know, whether or not it's any of these people who are purposefully, you know, getting people wound up. You talk about the guy in Tennessee, right, who's spewing venom and he's like, and you're like, you know, they're like, yeah, look, he knows his scripture. But then he claims, well, I only use about 10% of my time on the stage, you know, to really talk politics. And I don't really believe in any of this QAnon stuff. Like QAnon's not okay here, right? But then you're like, yeah, but all of the stuff you're talking about is the same stuff that like the QAnon people. So like, at what point does an individual churchgoer, do you think, or is it even possible in this time? Because it's not like they're going to church to escape this, right? It seems like a lot of times they're going to church to have this reinforced and that 
the pastors who aren't reinforcing it, Tim, are the ones that find themselves in trouble. Yeah, that's a key point in all of this, is that as a political guy, you'll understand what I'm saying. If you look at the last 15 or 20 years in American life, you don't have to be a consultant for a campaign or you don't have to be Frank Luntz or Carl Rove or David Axelrod to be able to figure out, okay, just look at what kind of car they drive, look at whether they went to college or not, look at what kind of sitcoms or, or Netflix shows they stream, look at the apps on their phone. You crunch all those different indicators and you spit out the formula and you can figure out nine times out of 10, which party this person votes for, right? So we've selected into these little tribes, these weird little subcultures in American life. And the church should not be one, right? The church was never designed to be some indicator of partisan political preference. And yet that is exactly what it has become in this modern age. And so I think that that's a part of the issue is that, yes, to your original question, these churchgoers, these everyday congregants, they have agency and they should be held accountable for their choices and certainly for their actions and ultimately for their kind of allegiances in terms of, you know, where they worship or who they follow or who they believe blindly. And yet, I think what we see in the church is nothing more than kind of an outgrowth of what we've seen elsewhere in the culture, which is people in times of fear and grievance and resentment and anxiety kind of suspending a certain degree of critical thinking and of kind of intellectual independence and just sort of doing what's most comfortable. And that is kind of falling in line with the tribe around them and maybe even falling into line behind a leader figure who offers them an assurance with a theology that seems tailor-made to their political and cultural identity, rather than tailoring any of the politics and culture to the theology, it seems to actually be the other way around in a lot of these churches that I've reported. I guess my question is, if you're looking for that kind of leadership from the pulpit, it's been on display for decades in this country, maybe a hundred years, whether or not it's Father Coughlin on the radio or Billy Graham. And look, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush because Coughlin and Graham were certainly not the same people and they had you know, different takes and different styles and everything else. But Jim and Tammy Faye and Bob Tilton and Jimmy Swaggart, and you mentioned Jerry Falwell, there always seems to be, and I hate to make it so capitalist sounding, there always seems to be a pretty significant market for the charismatic church leader who is asking for money. You call it the prosperity gospel. You know, Paula White, the more money you send me, the likely you are to get to heaven, which sounds a lot like the, uh, what did the Catholics call it back in the 15, 1600s, right? You could sort of buy your way out of purgatory. It doesn't sound like a lot of that stuff has really changed. No, it hasn't. And look, the church and the institutions of the church and the institutions of Christianity, they are always going to be flawed because they are institutions of men. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm in the uh, faculty lounge chewing on a 
woodcob pipe here, but like <laughs> there's something I think that has to be reckoned with, which is that whether you're thinking about the political system, whether you're thinking about the financial system, whether you're thinking about the healthcare system, whether you're thinking about the criminal justice system, whether you're thinking about the NCAA, I mean, you name it. We recognize that all of these institutions in our society are, if not broken, then they are at the very least, they are corrupted, right? And that's just always been the case because people are self-interested and people are greedy and people find a way to put themselves before, you know, what's good for themselves before what's good of the people around them. That's not new. And we want to assume that, well, in the institution of the church, it's got to be better, right? Because these are people who are oriented toward following Jesus. These are people who are taught that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and that to serve and to lay one's life down and to be self-sacrificial are, are sort of the ultimate aims of our value system and our belief system. And yet, the irony is that the church is actually oftentimes not better than those institutions, but worse than those institutions, because when you are able to wrap your greed, your corruption, your violence, your abuse, when you're able to wrap those sins in a holy veneer, um, then they become easier to get away with and they become easier to ignore. They become easier to justify. They become tax deductible. Yeah, they become tax deductible, right? I mean, like I spend a whole chapter on this towards the end of the book, but looking at the ways in which the church really has no accountability structures in place. Like at the very least, sure, Wall Street is full of thieves and crooks, but at least there's an SEC, right? Like, you know, we don't necessarily have any great accountability structures in place to monitor and to police bad behavior inside of the church. And so that is at the core of the problem here in many ways. It's not that we can ever like eradicate bad behavior because we believe that men are sinful and depraved creatures who that's why they need Christ in the first place. And yet accountability for that behavior is supposed to be paramount. That's what Paul writes about so often in the New Testament is about that accountability and about confronting that bad behavior. But instead, we have found ways, creative ways to justify it. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. So many of the pastors now and so many of the politicians too, you know, you, you see the Lauren Boebert saying, you know, it's not separation of church and state. It's the church tells the state what to do. And, you know, that how many different times, Tim, have you probably more than anybody heard, you know, there's no separating church and state in the Constitution. George Washington was baptized in the river, you know. Thomas Jefferson was a God-fearing man when, in fact, he was a slave-owning deist, as you write. And so you talk about no accountability, but then the leaders of these churches or the politicians 
who are willing to go along with them are saying, not only is there no accountability, like you can't tell me what to do anyway. You know, a lot of our problems exist at the intersection of bad history and bad theology. Didn't hear sort of getting at that a moment ago because, like, for example, you know, whether we're looking at the kind of ascendant Christian nationalist movement with its idea to kind of recapture Christian America and reclaim this country's Christian heritage from the secularists, the godless, evil Democrats who have, you know, perverted all those things. Or whether you're looking at just sort of like a more isolated example, right? So you mentioned Lauren Boebert, who rather infamously a couple of years ago said that Jesus didn't have enough AR-15s to keep the Roman government from killing him, which is farcical and it's just like mind-numbingly stupid, among other things. But it's also kind of an instructive thing to break down because here is someone like Lauren Boebert who makes a show of getting on stage at some of these kind of charismatic evangelical awakening events and like closing her eyes and lifting her hands in the air to pray and to sing and talk about, you know, being like on a mission from God, more or less. But here is someone who very clearly has not even the slightest intimacy with scripture, not even like a passing familiarity with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and why Jesus would have never wanted to, and not, not, not to mention just with the general credo of nonviolence, but why Jesus needed to be killed by the Roman government, why Christians believe Jesus's entire mission on earth and that God's entire design for humanity and for history hinged upon Jesus being executed by the Romans. But for her, there's a convenient plug-and-play application there. Well, wait a second. There's a gun debate. Wait a second. There's an opportunity for me here to inject the religion into the culture wars and to try and sound smart and pithy and you know, make a point and raise some money in the process. And you wind up revealing yourself to be someone who is just profoundly ignorant of the things that you're supposed to be talking about. But I wish that we could just dismiss that as some sort of a fringe thing. Now, maybe, of course, that statement itself is a fringe thing. Well, she's definitely a fringe thing, but more mainstream every day. Yeah, well, and that's I, I think that's the thing, right? It's like it's not just that Lauren Boebert says this thing. It's that when Lauren Boebert shows up to one of these conferences that I'm talking about, so do thousands of people who they're not members of Congress. They're everyday folks. They're teachers and they're cops and they're lawyers and whatever. And then they go back to their home congregations and read. Here's the thing. A lot of those congregations, those churches that they go to on Sundays, they probably have some real deep fractures around politics and around partisan identity. And those folks, you have to suspect, are probably going back and kind of injecting some of those Bobertian politics, those Bobertian, crazy, unhinged, kind of full-on Christian nationalist rhetoric back into their home congregations. And that is just fanning the flames that have I think, threatened to destroy much of the institution of evangelicalism as we've known it in this country. Let me ask you this. I asked another guest this, 
but he didn't grow up in the church, so I'd like to ask someone. You talk a fair amount about, you know, the idea of ministering to the poor, to the sick, to the, you know, less able. Take your pick of groups that historically churches would look after in society. And you said this, and, and I'm curious, is that, you know, a lot of people that go to these churches are probably very good people in their communities or within their church community. So where is it that the line comes from, you know, I'm going to take care of, you know, my community, I care about individuals, to fire-breathing, those people are coming for us, you know, Joe Biden or whoever it is, Tim, like, doesn't have to be Biden, is the Antichrist, you know, and then it becomes this path just to insanity. Like, how does somebody have all of that locked up in their brain simultaneously? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, it's funny. I have this anecdote early in the book where I'm talking with the pastor of a church up in the Hudson Valley in New York, and it happens to be the church where I was born and where my dad worked his first job out of seminary, and he had actually come to Christ at this church many, many years earlier. And I'm talking with this guy. This is a few years ago that we're having this conversation, and he's really agonizing over this fundraising video that they're going to air uh, on Sunday morning inside of the church to try and collect a special offering to send to missionaries in Ukraine, because the war is obviously just ravaging the country, and they're trying especially to help displaced folks. So they're doing what the church typically does, which is the very best of the church you see in times of crisis, in times of violence, in times of neglect and need and injustice, that the church rises to the occasion, sending money, sending resources, sending people to try and right those wrongs and to try and care for those who need it. And so the pastor is describing this to me and this effort they're undertaking for the people in Ukraine. And you might hear that and think, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that he's got this lady in his church, a Ukrainian-American, who, when she was recording the video message that they're going to air on Sunday morning, she starts going off on Vladimir Putin, calling him a war criminal and talking about all the horrible things he's done. And the pastor says, you know, my fear is that some of our people in the church who have been listening to Tucker Carlson all week and who think that Vladimir Putin's a good guy here and that Zelensky's the bad guy, that they are not going to open up their wallets and give any money to this fundraising exercise because they're going to hear her say that and suddenly their brain is like the switch is going to flip. And so ultimately he decides to edit that part of the video out. And it was it's a really interesting insight into the way that this works, Reed. And what he and a friend of his actually say to me as we're discussing this in that chapter of my book is they're saying, look, you do have these people who politics and this kind of tribal, militant, blood and soil, MAGA identity has kind of blocked out some of like the receptors in their brain that would otherwise be channeling in more of the Christian message to love your neighbor, to pray for your enemy. And yet there is still enough of that message getting through where some of these people will continue to be extremely generous they will go out of their way to, you know, this one pastor said to me, like, some of the people in my congregation who are like the farthest gone with some of the conspiratorial politics are still some of the most generous people I know with giving to charities and with volunteering their time. 
And yet, you can see that switch flip, as in that example of the kind of the Putin propaganda, if you will, that these people, they are still inclined because of their faith and because of the way that they have been oriented towards charity and towards goodwill in the church. They still have that DNA, Reed. It's in them, but it is in a battle, I think. It is in a battle with some of these uglier instincts that are being now sort of not only taught by the culture around them, but I think in some cases also being taught in their own churches. And that is, I think, the great danger that we need to confront. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You've been on TV sets enough, Tim, to know, and, and I've seen it too, that when you first have a friend that gets a TV gig, they have their on-air persona, which is punchy and blah, 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 and then the person you know, right? But then if they become regular TV people or professional TV people, suddenly like the off-air persona starts to sort of drift away, right? Like at the end of uh, one of the Avengers movies, right? You could see them disappearing. And before you know it, they can't talk in anything other than like punchy sound bites or did you hear what I said on the air yesterday? And I wonder if there's that too, which is this is an internal battle going on with these folks. And given it is an election year and given that, you know, we're likely to see more angst, right? More generated outrage, whatever it is, like, do you fear that there are some people who are otherwise good people who are in danger of crossing over and never coming back? Sure, I do. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I want to remain optimistic about all of this because it's too hard to get out of bed otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's hard to get out of bed otherwise. And and also, look, like you know, I'm a Christian. I believe that God is sovereign over these things, and I think that whatever we are going through right now in this American moment of turmoil and hyperpolarization and civic unrest, like. You know, I think that God is still on his throne. And I also think, as my dad used to always say, that God doesn't bite his fingernails. Like, my theology is bigger than thinking that all of this hinges, like human history hinges on what happens in the next election in America. That being said, there are obviously real dangers that need to be confronted. And one of them is, in my view, that this radicalism that you see in certain quarters of the church, that if it is allowed to spread, and if it is not just sort of a passing fever, but that instead what you see is like a new normal of the kind of Charlie Kirk, Eric Metaxas, Greg Locke style, like blood and soil, Christian nationalist politics that have explicit designs of subjugating the culture around them, like weaponizing Jesus Christ as their way to win the culture wars and to dominate their opponents and to reclaim what they view to be some sort of idealized America. Like the damage that they are doing to the witness of Jesus Christ, to the beauty of the gospel in the process, is just enormous and cascading. So, more than any one election, more than any particular like cultural conflict, I just think that there is a 
danger in the church is more people, and by the way, people of different party affiliations, people of different cultural beliefs, people who are going to fall different ways on a whole host of subjects. But if they are not willing to stand up uniformly against this kind of perversion of the gospel inside of their church communities, then that is a serious institutional problem. And I do worry a lot about it. Well, and you have interviews with several people, you know, with several of these pastors. And I'll tell you, Tim, your ability, first and foremost, to get all of these people to sit down with you, right? And the higher up the food chain, and not only in churches, but across politics and media is just, it is truly an amazing asset and amazing talent on your part, is you capture in the midst of their conversations with you where you describe how, and, and you do a good job of showing, not telling, that you've sort of caught them, and then they have to sort of recover. And I wonder, as we start to wrap up here, whether or not, to your earlier point, that that stuff shouldn't be cause for greater concern, too, because for some of these people, and I'm going to point to the leaders in particular, maybe they do believe it, but maybe they believe it only so long as they believe it's good for them and you know whatever their interests are. And when they go home at night, you know maybe they take the mask off or whatever. But that was one thing I thought was very compelling was it seemed like a lot of these guys, and they were guys, know it's an act. I mean, is that, am I being too harsh by half? No, no, I don't think so. And I think there's a really interesting question embedded in that read, which I think you're getting at is a lot of these folks, they are guys, as you said, a lot of these guys have kind of, although not all of them, I, you know, Paula White, perhaps, um, there, there are a couple, but mostly guys, they have attached themselves to this fad of Trumpist, belligerent, in-your-face, confrontational, no-holds-barred politics where the old etiquette is no longer necessary and the, old, and the old rules no longer apply. And I think the question is, more broadly, is that stuff, is it a fad? Is it passing? Now, you know, these things do tend to be cyclical, and we all do tend to be kind of slaves to the moment. But if we look across almost 250 years of American history, we see that these things do tend to be cyclical. And even when they're, they burn really hot, they do still tend to burn relatively fast. So if, in fact, that's the case, and if, let's say, five, ten years from now, the Trump thing has kind of really run its course and our politics have kind of moved past it and the Republican Party recalibrates because they've lost enough elections or there's been some sort of institutional response to adjust to post-Trump life, do these pastors and faith leaders, do they adjust? Or... Have they, at that point, kind of locked themselves and their followers into this new reality where kind of MAGA politics has merged with conservative orthodoxy in the church and created this radical environment that I'm describing in the book? And does that then become sort of a new normal in the church, even as politics moves on? I mean, I guess the point I'm making is that what we see as far as the political stock market is always moving and and you know we can always look back on the trends and say oh boy i can't believe this thing got as high as it was or boy that thing really dropped off the danger is that in attaching themselves and in identifying themselves so readily with those transient political trends i think church leaders have not only cheapened the gospel and not only led some of their own folks astray 
but they've also widened the gap between Christianity and outside culture that might otherwise be really compelled by the teachings of Christ and might be compelled to walk into a church one day and hear more uh, about what he has to say were it not for these people who they have come to view as just an extension of the Republican Party. And I think that's right. And I think it's not just the pastors. I think you see it with so many Republican leaders, Tim, that I've known for years and you've covered for years who decided, and I think transient, I hope to God it's transient, but also it was the path of least resistance. It was the fastest way to go. And now you have, and I think it probably is very similar in a lot of these places, especially, you know, states that are dominated by Republicans, you know, a lot in the South, some in the Midwest, some in the Mountain West, but they are in line with one another now in many ways. And I say this about the politics, not necessarily the church, is that, you know, the poison has seeped through, which is, yes, you know, I'm going to do all I can to make sure Donald Trump doesn't win again. But that doesn't mean that it's over, if that makes sense. Yes, I think it will be a huge blow to MAGA or whatever you want to call it. But I don't think that the fight for American democracy or American politics or even for the church that you grew up in is in any way done, right? I think that the people who believe this stuff are unlikely to just decide, well, Donald Trump's gone, so I don't believe it anymore. But there will be some percentage of that. All right, Tim, before I let you go, what else are you working on and where can we find you online and where can we find more of your work? Well, unfortunately, it's an election year, which means that most of what I'm working on has to be involved with politics in some way, <laughs> shape, or form, which, uh, you know, I'd rather be writing about just about anything else in the world at this moment, but it is what it is. So you can find my stuff at The Atlantic, where I'm, I'm typically doing my thing, kind of a longer form profile stuff. And I've got a few cool projects this year that I think folks will be interested in. And then, you know, the book is available wherever you buy books. And uh, I have a website. It's by Tim Alberta, like the byline, bytimalberta.com. And people can kind of keep up with my stuff there. Well, and as always, gang, you can find me on social media, on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and over at Substack, the home front. Tim Alberta, thanks for joining me. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Reed. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.